And welcome everybody to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can follow me and the thoughts throughout the week that I post and other people's thoughts, smarter, smarter people than I am, uh, very often, uh, their thoughts and their articles and, and uh, insights on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. Uh, I urge you to follow me on Twitter, not because I need the followers, and these days Twitter seems to erase as many followers as I gain every day, so I've kind of given up that hope of being a big-time 100,000 follower on Twitter. But um, I, I do think it's... Uh, I, I really do try to bring in a lot of new voices and, and people who I think are quite insightful, who aren't the kind of folks you're probably seeing on your social media feed, let alone your multimedia uh, news stations and things like that. So I do urge you to do that and, um, and join me there. At JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle. I have a Facebook feed as well. A lot of the stuff carries over there as well if you're a little bit more comfortable on Facebook. And that's just my name, Jake Novak. You'll find a number of... Uh, there's two Facebook pages of mine there. Um, there are... Obviously, the big story going into uh, this week now is, of course, the, a, a terrible day of two mass shootings in America on Saturday, 20-plus um, people killed, I guess it was 20, and then 26 others injured at a Walmart in El Paso, a 21-year-old shooter who apparently uh, took on some white nationalist beliefs and was, may have been targeting minorities. Looks like that's that story there. And for those of you who like to have balance in, in, in the evil force in the world, you had a mass shooting in Dayton where nine people were killed the shooter was killed, but based on his social media feeds, it turns out he was a far left-wing type, uh, retweeting a number of anti-Republican um, type stuff and, and was a big follower of Antifa type groups and also apparently was a Satanist. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's something for everybody here. I don't mean to laugh out of, because um, it's not funny, uh, but just to, the idea that I think what is uh, ludicrous is when people try to make it think like there's only one uh, philosophy, one violent philosophy in America, only one problem to consider. Um, we have extremism on both sides that's becoming increasingly violent. And, of course, as you, as you may have guessed, for those of you who have followed me either on this program here on the Nachum Siegel Network or in my writings, you probably know that I'm one of those people who feels that the focus on the gun itself, the focus on the weapon itself, that so much, uh, that so many of our politicians and, so, and and the news media does, is is really a mistake. This is not about the weapon. This is not about guns. Um, there are a number of things that I think we can do as a community to keep people more safe when it comes to guns. But those are the same things that we should do to be, be keeping our community more safe when it comes to everything. Um, and I will put up on my Twitter feed, if for those of you who are very focused on the gun, fixated on the gun, it isn't a complete waste of time to do that because when we focus on criminals getting access to gun, no, guns or, or people who own guns illegally, which of course makes you retroactively a criminal, but I mean people who may not have an otherwise record but own an illegal gun, uh, I'm all for, and the whole country, at least in the recent past, has been all for cracking down on that. Uh, under the Clinton and then the George W. Bush administration, special money and special task force at task forces at the city and federal levels were put into place, and they were incredibly, incredibly effective at cutting down on the number of illegal guns in America. 
especially in America's cities. And people who were criminals having access to guns, already having guns, were, were really cracked down on. Now, we're going through a really, I think, dangerous and disturbing period right now in America where we're hearing all about how terrible it was that in the early and mid-90s under the Clinton administration and then eventually a Republican Congress, but actually this started under a Democrat Congress, we had a, a tough crime bill that was passed that ended up putting a lot of minorities in jail. And we hear about this all the time, especially in the Democratic primaries where these newfangled, new progressive Democrats think that they've got something on Bernie, uh, I'm sorry, Joe Biden for being a senator and being one of the major senators who supported these crime bills, et cetera, et cetera. Now, listen, not the biggest fan of Joe Biden. Uh, I believe the best way to describe Joe Biden is rusty weather vane, you know, meaning that he has, throughout his career has just gone, turned to where the wind is blowing. But he's getting old, so he's kind of rusty. And at some point when you keep turning with way, every which way the wind blows and you change your positions and you change your supposed beliefs based on where the wind is blowing, eventually you run out of steam doing that. You eventually it gets you know, rusty. You can't keep doing that. And I think he's getting really close to that point where his weather vane is unable to turn very quickly because it's so rusty. But that aside, I'm really concerned about this. I mean, it's becoming conventional wisdom, this, this false conventional wisdom in America that the crime bills under President Clinton and the crime crackdown during those years with community policing and the extra money that was given to put more cops on the streets. I'm very, very concerned that this is becoming the conventional wisdom that, it, that this was bad, that this was a bad thing. Did it end up putting more black men in prison? Absolutely. But folks, who were those black men committing crimes against? Who were those black men killing? Who were those black men, in many cases, raping? Who were those black men selling drugs to? Other black people. The black community has been spared many, many deaths and many, many crimes because of the crime bill, because of that crime initiative of the early 90s. Now, do I think that Joe Biden is going to have the brains and the guts to stand up in the next debate and say, you're damn right, I supported those crime bills, and yes, it did put a large number of black men in jail, and I know that looks unfair on the surface, but it saved black lives. Those people weren't coming into the white neighborhoods and, hurt and killing the rich white people. They were creating a, a, a genocide of their own people in their own neighborhoods. And in the places where the crime bill didn't take enough of an effect, or in the places where they have, the first places where they've started to wear off, we're seeing the results of this. Now, we know about the mass shootings in El Paso, and the mass shootings in Dayton this weekend, but did you know that there were dozens and dozens of shootings in Chicago this weekend, and a few people died, I think six people? Did you know about that? My point is that going after guns and people who own guns illegally, and going after illegal guns, guns that are, are, are not legally sold in this country, and guns that are being owned by people who should not have them legally, I'm not talking about we don't think they should have a gun. It's not about your personal feeling. I'm talking about an actual law that's in place. When that has been done in this country with effort, with bipartisan, with bipartisan partnership, which I think would happen again, if President Trump came out and said, listen, we can argue all day about new gun laws, but why don't we commit ourselves to 
really cracking down on the illegal guns that are still on the streets right now and the criminals who have them. Even in this ridiculously nasty, divided situation we have going on politically and especially in Washington, I think that he would get the votes for that. I really do, depending on how he sells it. But I think, he could, I think it could be done because Bill Clinton got it and George W. Bush got it. And during their presidencies, we saw massive drops in crime and we also saw massive drops in gun crime. But I'm not being naive here. Listen, I've written about this, and again, I'll put it on my Twitter feed. I, I, you know, I wrote about how we know how to stop gun violence, and by that I meant in the aggregate. You know, if we take all the shootings in America in a given week or in a given month, most of them are going to be these kinds of urban shootings like you had in Chicago. We, we, we get every few months, sadly now, a massive shooting like we had in El Paso and in Dayton over the weekend. But for the most part, the steady stream of gun violence in this country is coming from the inner cities where they need more cops, where the cops need to be supported more, and where the communities need to be reminded that when black men are being grounded up and arrested in their area for crimes, it's saving their lives, the lives of that community. It's not saving my life as a, as a, as a white guy living in a, in a white suburb, in a mostly white suburb. That's not, gonna, that's not for me. It's for them. And there are good ways and bad ways to do it. I'm not naive about that either. For example, in New York City, you had two programs that had varying success, very, very different success rates. In fact, one was a failure and one was a success because of the way it was handled. The failure was the buy and bus program that started in the early 90s and went all the way through the late 90s, where undercover cops walking around basically were entrapping people in drug crimes going around saying, hey, uh, I want to buy drugs from you. And the person that they would be approaching would almost always be a minority, would almost always be somebody in an urban area, you know, obviously an urban area because we're talking about the NYPD here, and very often was not a drug dealer. And sometimes those th- the misunderstandings would arise. It would put the cops in tremendous danger and it put those people in tremendous danger. The worst case being, the worst case scenario being, uh, the killing of a man named Patrick Dorismond, who was working as a bouncer at a, an old place called the Club Wakamba. It was just a dive bar near Penn Station. He was working as a bouncer out there, and for some reason, the buy and bus cops went over to this guy, tried to buy drugs from, them. He, from him. He kept saying, I'm not, a, I'm not a drug dealer. He ended up getting into a physical scuffle with them because he was so enraged and, and insulted, and he got shot and killed by the undercover cops. So a completely unnecessary thing that had nothing to do with drugs ended up with a man being killed for really no good reason. That was buy and bust, and, and they pretty much ended buy and bust, much to my um, happiness. I'm, I'm really glad they got rid of that program. But the program that did work, the program that did work that really did reduce crime, the one that got all the attention, a lot more attention than buy and, buy and bust, and like I said, buy and bust was incredibly fraught with dangers to the cops, dangers to the people, and it did not really make a dent in drug crime in, in, in any of the cities that it was used. But what really did make a dent in crime and what really was a positive was the stop and frisk program. Now, stop and frisk was not like buy and bust. Stop and frisk was uniform police officers setting up a table, usually during the daylight hours, and yes, stopping and frisking people who they felt checked off a number of boxes or criteria for suspicious behavior or potentially dangerous behavior. And lives were saved. And again, not lives in my middle-class white neighborhood, lives in the urban areas where stop and frisk was set up. And for Mayor de Blasio to, to get rid of it for political correctness and virtue signaling, it, 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 it's a shame. Because black lives, which he you know, supposedly says, he says matter, are, are being sacrificed because you didn't like that program. That program was a good program. And we need more of those kinds of programs because as, as much as we get outraged by the mass shootings 
in either white areas or just mass shootings in general that happen in, in one particular area, the real bulk of gun crime in this country, of gun violence in this country, is going on in these urban areas. And of course, the real bulk of gun deaths in this country is coming from suicides. That's an entirely different subject, but part of what I'm going to get into soon in, in, in the second half of this program here of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. But my point is, we need to go after all the illegal guns, all the criminals who have guns, and if we do that, we will get a tremendous aggregate drop in the overall amount of gun crimes and gun deaths in this country, and isn't that what we want? Now, again, I'm not naive. I know that we're trying to figure out how we would all be happy with a reduction in gun, in gun crimes, but I know that because of the, the spate of these mass shootings that have, been, that have been going on in this country for a long time, through, I guess, three, four presidencies now, at least three, I mean, I think we probably had a couple of instances on, in George W. Bush's presidency, we had several during Barack Obama's presidency, and we've had now a few under President Trump. Um, I hope it goes without saying, it's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous to put this blame on behalf of a president. For those of you who really didn't like Barack Obama, I don't blame Barack Obama for it. For those of you who really don't like President Trump, I would advise you not to blame President Trump for it. This is a problem we're having in America that goes well beyond who is in the White House at any given time, but especially the last two or three presidents. Please don't fall into that trap. And I'm not even talking about the people who fall into that trap in the, the three or four minutes after the shootings occur, when we may, may, where it may turn out it has nothing to do with a lot of the things we, don't, we, we know. Of course, that is really, really stupid. And the fact that there are, continue to be politicians, celebrities, and other prominent people who can't wait to get on social media to blame somebody for a mass shooting within five minutes of his report, I can't believe there are still people still dumb enough to do this. You know, a day later, two days later, I get it. But, I mean, there are still prominent people who have a lot to, gain, to lose who still jump on Twitter or Facebook within five minutes of a shooting to, to tell us who, whose fault it is. It's incredible to me. I mean, how many times do those people have to be burned before they realize, don't do that. Don't do that. It doesn't help anything, and all it can do is make you look bad. No one's, it's not, you're not going to look like a really smart person if it turns out you're right, that, oh, it, it's this guy or something. It's, just, it's very silly to do. And it just makes people feel angry, and it, it starts the division process. I mean, we can all come together, like President Trump said in his tweet about, let's, I think everyone, he said, he said, I believe everyone in the country is against this kind of violence. Let's, let's hear those kinds of messages. I'm okay with that. But you jump on Twitter, you jump on Facebook and blame somebody, especially a president, after a killing like this, it's a mass killing like this. It just, it, there's, no, there's nothing to gain from that. It just really makes you look stupid, and it causes more division. So please stop doing that. If you know someone doing that, don't do it. And if you're a celebrity listening to this, please, please don't do it. But I, I want to talk about without being naive. Again, I, I, hope I'm not, I, I don't want anyone to think like, oh, well, Jake Novak just wants to talk about getting all the gun deaths down, but doesn't he know that America's really fixated on these mass shootings and he didn't give any answer to that? Uh, I, I have an answer for that. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying it's the right answer that I know how to fix all of this, but I do think that there is a diagnosis that I can give. Again, not five seconds after a shooting. This is after a lot of shooting, sadly, and a lot of time thinking about it and a lot of talking with people who are smarter than I am about these kinds of things. And I really think that I've been able to pinpoint some of the similarities. It really feels like the bulk of these kinds of shootings, and again, I know there are exceptions, but it really feels like the bulk of these kinds of shootings are coming from young men, men between the ages of 18 and 30. And it really feels to me like in every one of these cases, we're seeing a, we're seeing a, a real loss on three different levels. 
the, the, the majority of these kinds of shooters are dealing with either, and sometimes it's all three, but it's, I usually see at least one of these things very prominently, either the lack of a full family unit. And by that I mean they most, almost all of them do not have or did not have through a tremendous part of their lives and their, and their formative years a father and a mother in the house. That's one. The second thing we're seeing is almost always a dearth of religious life. You know, what we're seeing very often is in religious, that, 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 that churches and, of course, synagogues have been targeted. And I really feel that people who are regular churchgoers or synagogue goers don't think about going to those kinds of places to kill people. First of all, that they, I don't think they become mass killers, for one thing. For the most part, we're not seeing these, these people in these kinds of shootings. It, ends up be, it turns out that they were regular churchgoers. They might say they're Christian. They might say that they're devout. But it turns out that they're not like regular community known faces in the community of what we call churches in America and, and synagogues. So I really think that that's one of the reasons why they, the people who don't go to these kinds of places target the churches and the synagogues because it becomes a, a place where they actually have a mixed feeling about it. They may think that they hate the people in them, but they may also, deep down, I think they're jealous. They're jealous that there's a community there that they haven't had, and they're angry about it. They're angry that they have something that they don't have. Similar to my first thing that I said about the lack of a father and a mother family unit, look at some of these places where, where the shootings also happen at, you know, when they're not at a house of worship. They're, they're at a place like a Walmart. Where who, who's shopping at a Walmart on a Saturday? People, if you're a young, successful single guy or girl, you're not shopping at Walmart, not, not only because it's money, a money thing, you can afford to shop somewhere better, but because people who are shopping at Walmart, even if they're not that poor, they're shopping for family items. They're getting underwear, they're getting socks, they're getting cereal, they're getting uh, you know, maybe, maybe, a, uh, maybe a sprinkler for their lawn, you know, I mean... Real stuff that families have. And again, if you've grown up in a, in a place where there wasn't a family, full family unit, you might look at a Walmart and actually see things that you, would, you really want, wish you had. A family going and shopping together or something like that. Things like that happen. And parties are often a place, you know, a, a target of mass shooters. Because a lot of them are loners and don't feel they have a friend or a community or can, can feel comfortable in a party atmosphere. So we're seeing a lack of, of a, in so many cases, a lack of a father and a mother in the house, a lack of a religious life, and then most importantly, because family and religious life both feed into this third thing, we're also seeing a lack of a clear purpose. You know, we can talk about guns and we can talk about violent culture in America, but what, I really, what really, really scares me when I look at young people in America today is I see so many of them without any real purpose, and they're, and they're striving for one. You know, one of the reasons why certain political movements and like things like environmentalism are attractive to some young people very often is that they're looking for some cause. You know, if you're not a religious Jew or a religious Christian or even a devout Muslim, what, what is your goal every day? Is it just to get rich and to be happy? And what does that, what does it mean? I, I always tell my kids, I know all the other parents that I just want my kids to be happy. Look, I, I would like you to be happy, but more important to me is that my children will be good people. <laughs> You know, what, there's a lot of happy people out there who are disturbed. <laughs> you know, they're happy being not so nice. I don't want that. But where's the purpose? And one of the things that 
One of the reasons that I think Israel doesn't have these kinds of issues, you know, in a non, when, we, when we strip out terrorism, when we strip out terrorism and, the other, and that kind of violence that's connected to terrorism in Israel, connected to the Arab-Israeli conflict, we look at a country like Israel and we don't see mass shootings. We don't see a lot of crime in Israel, actually. We don't see a lot of homicide in Israel. And is that because Jews are better and we're nicer and because religious boys and girls are, are, have so much more Yerat Hashem that they don't commit crimes? I don't know. I don't think it's that. I think it's that almost every person in Israel from 90 to 8 to 9 months feels like they're living, it has a purpose. The purpose is the, 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 the building up the strength of the Jewish people, building up the strength of the, of the Jewish state. You feel like you're a part of something. Now, you may feel marginalized, like you're not getting enough of an opportunity. For example, Mizrahi Jews have felt that way for a long time in Israel. But you're still part of something that needs you. And I think the draft has a lot to do with it also. And I think that when we got rid of that, you've heard me say this before on, on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I had an entire uh, program about this where to give you the Cliff Notes version, I did conclude and I continue to conclude that the elimination of the military draft in the United States is on balance, ha- has been a good thing, especially for the military. But it has come with tremendous, tremendous losses to our society as well. It's a net win but it's, it's been a tough one. It's, it's, not necessi- it's not a slam dunk. And I think that for minority communities, the ending of the draft has been a bad thing, especially you know, in, a, in a post-Vietnam era where the, where the military is in better shape. And I think that we had fewer mass shootings, even though you had millions more Americans getting firearms training. And I think actually that is, it's actually not even though, I think it's because of. You know, when you really train on a firearm in a military setting, for people who are somewhat well-adjusted and better, you're going to learn respect for that weapon and understand that, that you can't be you know, going around killing people willy-nilly with it. But I also think it gave people a little bit of a purpose in life that they don't have. I think that we have a purpose deficit in this country. And I think that when you couple that with the fact that we are learning more and more in the science that, that between the ages of, I'll say, 16 and 28 or so, more, more, I'll narrow it down, more like between the ages of 16 and 22, we're learning more and more scientifically that those are really, really sensitive years in mental development for, for, for children, for boys and girls, where that's why suicides spike at those ages, and that's why other kinds of problems are spiking at those ages. And when you couple that with the fact that there's not enough purpose for a lot of our young people in life, and I mean purpose. I don't mean, oh, trying to get into a real good college. I don't mean trying to get rich. I don't mean trying to become famous. I mean a real purpose, whether it's in your religious community. You know, I, I remember a very famous interview in the New York Times, famous because I remember it. I don't know if you remember it, from about five, six years ago, where they were interviewing people at Pomegranate, the, that really great kosher um, supermarket emporium in Brooklyn. And they were interviewing young people about marriage. And a couple of people said, I'm in a happy marriage. But it was understood that this was my, I had an obligation to be married at a young age. It was understood that this was an obligation to the Jewish people. This is an obligation to me as an adult that I had to take on. And don't get me wrong, I don't want people forced into marriages. If you're not ready and don't have somebody special, don't do it. But Again, another topic I've written about quite a bit over the years is one of the things that really gets me scratching my head is I don't understand these parents of children in their 20s and even 30s who are in, commit, you know, supposed, I guess, committed relationships or in long-term relationships, and the parents now don't say, hey, maybe you should get married. 
maybe it's time to grow up and show a real, true, spiritual and legal commitment. Maybe if you want to have kids, the kids should know that mommy and daddy are, are married. You know, I don't care what anybody says about newfangled relationships. It's good for a kid to know that their parents are married and together, if that's possible. If you can't live together and you need to get divorced, I get it, I understand. But if you can, this whole just coexisting thing is not working. It's not working for the children. And I do think that it is contributing to this violent, violent outburst in America. Guns, especially in a state like Texas, have been available and open for decades and decades. The spate of mass shootings that we're seeing now is not because of gun laws. It's just not. We have other problems in this country that we need to take care of. And again, I truly believe that the purpose deficit that we're facing in this country is probably the biggest one. We're dealing with a potential time bomb of every young person in America between the ages of 16 and I'll say 25 who don't have a stable family background, don't have a stable religious background, and don't have a purpose in their life, a positive purpose in their life. What do we expect from somebody like that? You're darn right I expect them to, to be a potential violent person. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about them either being potentially violent or potentially abusing themselves with drugs or God knows what. You're darn right I'm worried about all that. And when we talk about purpose, I want to talk about two things that are also happening in these last few days that you should really watch because they do show exactly what we should be looking at when it comes to purpose in a society. Because what's going on right now in both Hong Kong and Russia are examples of two very, very important causes that we should be watching very carefully and I think supporting in this country. And, and I'm not just talking about our politicians, I'm talking about you and me following the news and talking about it with our friends and trying to get a good handle on it before we see the mistakes of the past repeated. In Hong Kong, millions of people are coming out on the street and demanding real democracy. And even though they're people of Hong Kong and their immediate goal is to improve the, the, the freedoms and to return to the freedoms that they felt that they had more recently in Hong Kong, it's clear that they're sending a message to mainland China, China as well. Look, ethnically and, and culturally, these are their brothers and sisters just across, the, just across you know, a border from them. And they're seeing what's going on in China. China has become even more repressive. You know, we were told for years in this country that if we just bring China into the economic partnership of the world, they'll eventually modernize and they'll, free, and they'll give more freedoms to their people. The opposite has happened. They have less freedom, and they're using technological advances to crack down on their people even more, much to the shame of the Googles and the Yahoos and, the, and all the other tech companies that are colluding with them. For money, it's just for money. They, I don't think that the people who run Google and, and, and the social media companies have the same philosophy, have a communist philosophy or anything else like that. I just think that they, they look at China, that it's the world's biggest market by people, and they're just like, oh, I'll make a lot of money if I work with this government. And for that, they're willing to help them and be complicit in the cracking down on these people. And what we're seeing in Russia also, the people of Russia understand they don't really have a democracy, that Putin is controlling that country from top to bottom. And we've seen protests in the last few days, and we've seen the Russian government starting to arrest these people and crack down on them. And they're not even asking for Putin to step down. They're asking for more opposition parties to be allowed to run in the elections. That's what they're asking for. 
That's the great crime that they're committing in Russia. My friends, as, as frightening as some of these stories are and as confusing as they may be to some of us, that's a purpose. Those people going out on the streets in Hong Kong, they have my admiration and they have in some cases, uh, they're, they're a source of jealousy for me. I'm jealous. I wish that our young people in this country had a purpose that was worth doing that for. They don't. The people of Russia, the young people of Russia have a purpose worth going out into the streets for and protesting. We don't have that in this country right now. Except <laughs> the only purpose we have that I think everyone should maybe get out on the streets for is to find a purpose. And for that, though, I think they need to get back to family, they need to get back to religion, and they need to get back to maybe serving their country in a positive way. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.